Good morning. It's good to be here with you. Uh, we're in uh, 2 Samuel. I'm opening my Bible here. You can open your Bible, or if you don't have one, raise your hand. Uh, Tom's coming down the aisle. He's got one that you can use today and take home. Uh, I think those are a little larger print, too, so some of us would appreciate that more than others. Um, last week, Pastor Jared taught us about God's mercy and his grace, and we've been learning that David was much more than the Sunday school version we're teaching our children. David was just as human and just as sinful and depraved as any one of us. It was only and simply by God's loving mercy and grace that David was fully forgiven of his sin and given the promise of heaven. This is also true for anyone today, anyone who comes to the Lord in surrender and repentance. It doesn't seem right that God would see David or even you and me as his child. I know I don't deserve that. Well, this morning we're going to study not only about God's grace and mercy, but we're going to study about God's holiness, his totally unapproachable righteousness. This is our first thought in the back of the bulletin. Because God is holy, we can only experience his love because he is also full of mercy and grace. But first, let's look in chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 17 through 25. They're about God's continued grace and his mercy shown toward his people. Verse 17, we'll start there. Now, when the Philistines <clears throat> heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. We learned last week that David moved his capital city from Hebron up to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem became known as the city of David. David's men defeated the Jebusites. Remember Joab and his men, they crept up uh, into the city unawares through the water tunnel. But no sooner was David established in his own capital city then the old enemy, the Philistines, returned. You know, that's true in our personal lives. Satan waits for the peace that comes after the storm, and then he attacks us again. Well, let's finish verse 17. And David heard of it, <clears throat> and he went down to the stronghold. Now, David hears of this all-out military campaign, and he seeks a place where he can gather all of his people, warriors from all 12 tribes now, from the north and from the south. And we don't know for sure, but I believe this stronghold is the same cave of Adullam where David and his men hid from Saul. Verse 18. The Philistines also went, and they deployed themselves in the valley of Rephraim. I've tried to illustrate how this would look on our slide here on my map. 
So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? So here's David again. He's seeking direction from the Lord. And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Now, I've underlined the words before me and water. They're important for later on, even this morning. Therefore, David called the name of this place Baal Perazim, or the Lord who breaks through. This is our second point I want you to emphasize in our bulletin. Whenever you or I, when we're struggling and about ready to give up, when we need a breakthrough, God specializes in breakthroughs. What Satan dams up, God can break through. Our God is a battering ram. There's no fortification, none on earth, that can withstand the power of God's Holy Spirit. Verse 21. And they left their images, their idols, there, and David and his men carried them away. Now they're in full retreat <clears throat> from the forces of Israel. The Philistines abandoned their idols. I think they probably brought them into the battlefield like protective good luck charms. And we aren't left wondering, and I know I did, I wondered why David and his men carried these idols away. Well, fortunately, we have First Chronicles chapter 14. It tells us what David and his men do with these Philistine idols. Verse 12, And when they left their gods there, David gave a commandment, and they were burned with fire. You see, the last chapters of First Chronicles gives a parallel account of 2 Samuel. And you can read it for more information and more details of David's life. Verse 22, back in 2 Samuel. <clears throat> then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephim. Therefore David inquired of the Lord again. And he said, you shall not, the Lord said, you shall not go up. Circle around behind them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. So David is seeking the Lord's direction again, and God is leading him. They're moving quickly from their position behind the Philistine army, and they're listening for wind in the tops of the trees. One Bible teacher put it this way. He said the rustle of the trees would cover the steps of the stealthily approaching Israelites. I like how the message version describes this. This time God said, don't attack them head on. Instead, circle around behind them and ambush them from the grove of sacred trees. When you hear the sound of shuffling in the trees, get ready to move out. It's a signal that God is going ahead of you to smash 
the Philistine camp. Let me finish, finish verse 24 then. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. You see, the phrase before you underscores God's position. It's the Lord fighting on David's behalf. Just as it says before me back in verse 20, where some of us underline. Look back in the middle of verse 20 for just a moment. where we read David's words. The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Here in verse 24, God is like the sound of a wind in the top of the trees. Perhaps it's the Holy Spirit bringing the angels, the angel warriors, marching through the treetops. This is two perfect pictures of the Holy Spirit intervening for David on his behalf. The first is the Holy Spirit like the wind in verse 24. John chapter 3, Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, <clears throat> and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from, where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like gushing water in verse 20. John 7 Jesus says, He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him should receive. Our third point in the bulletin. It's the Holy Spirit who fights for us too. He also goes before us. He gives us the energy, his power, to live for Jesus. Verse 25, and David did so as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba, also known as Gibeon, as far as Gezer. They were pursued all the way from Gibeon, six miles northwest of Jerusalem, to Gezer, a city in the northern foothills. Well, now this brings us up to chapter 6 in 2 Samuel. Verses 1 through 11, the ark is brought to Jerusalem. David has a heart for God. He knows God's presence always accompanies, <clears throat> always accompanies the ark. He wants to live close to God, so he brings the ark to Jerusalem. Verse 1. <clears throat> Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose, and he went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God. Now, this town, I've got it on the map, <clears throat> is also known as Kirjath-Jerim. Kir, you can see it on the map. It's about eight miles west of Jerusalem. And David's going there to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem. The ark of God, whose name is called the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. In heaven, God's throne is surrounded by two mighty angel cherubim. The ark of the covenant was an earthly model of God's heavenly throne. The ark hasn't been mentioned 
<clears throat> since 1 Samuel chapter 4, before Saul became king. Did you miss it? <laughs> the Philistines captured it when they, uh, at the battle, and they moved it into their country, but you know, I'm going to share this morning, they couldn't get rid of it fast enough once they'd captured it. Do you remember the story? It takes place way back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. Israel went to war against the Philistines at uh, Ebenezer. And he sent, they sent order, orders to Shiloh to bring the Ark of the Covenant to God, to the, of God, to the battle. The Philistines thrashed Israel so mercilessly that the Israelite soldiers, they ran for their lives. And if that wasn't bad enough, that's when the Philistines captured the ark. And the two sons of Eli, those bad guys, Hophni and Phinehas, they were killed. Once the Philistines had seized the ark of God, they brought it into their own shrine, their own temple, and they placed it alongside the idol of Dagon. To their dismay, one morning they found the idol of Dagon fallen down before the ark of God, broken in pieces. Its head and its arms were thrown into the entry, entryway. Only its, only its torso was in one piece. And after that, then, God strikes the Philistines with tumors and with an infestation of rats in the towns and the surrounding neighborhoods. So after moving the ark from city to city, trying to get rid of the infestation, the people call the the Philistine leaders together, and they demand those leaders, get it out of here. The ark of the God of Israel, send it back where it came from. The ark of God, it only had been with them for about seven months. Then they put it on the back of a cart. They took two cows and left their calves in the barn, and they tied those, uh, hitched those cows to the cart, and they, on their own, headed for Israel without any guidance from the Philistines. They went to the town of Beth Shemesh. Now, it's not back in Beth Shemesh very long when 70 men of the town, out of curiosity, they irreverently peek under the lid of the ark to see what's inside. God struck 70 men dead. Now, these strange events follow the ark wherever it goes. The idol of Dagon falling before uh, the ark. The plagues and rats infesting the Philistines. The men dying because they look into the ark just out of curiosity. All of this is God's doing because of the ark. So what we're seeing in the ark is a physical expression of God, of his purity, his sanctity, his holiness. The whole town of Beth Shemesh was there in mourning, reeling from the hard blow from God. And they're questioning out loud, who can stand before God, this holy God? And who can we get? to take this ark off our hands. 
they sent emissaries to Kirjath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of God to Israel. Come down and get it. The ark's being moved around like it's a hot potato. So the men of Kirjath-Jerim, they came and they got the ark of God and they delivered it to the house of Abinadab on the hill where it stayed for 50 years. All of this has happened before Saul was anointed king. The ark wasn't mentioned again in 1st or 2nd Samuel until this morning in chapter 6, verse 1, where David and his men come to take it to Jerusalem. We, aren't, we are given more information about this same situation, as I said, in 1st Chronicles. Here's a good example of it. 1 Chronicles 13, verse 3, says this, And let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. It's not thought of or inquired of for over 50 years. So this is where we find ourselves this morning in 2 Samuel. Let me read verse 2 again. <clears throat> David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God. So they set the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, they drove the new cart. Sounds like a plan, right? The Ark of the Covenant has been carried on a cart now for 50 years since the Philistines captured it in the Battle of Ebenezer. David uses a new cart. That ought to show the Lord how carefully and prayerfully David is taking care of this holy relic. We read in verse 4, And they brought it out of the house of Abinadad, which was on the hill, accompanying the Ark of God, and Ahio went before the Ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, tambourines, sistrums, and all cymbals. Now, most of you may by now know that this whole mini rose parade is already in big trouble. Dave? David is following the pattern of the Philistines. But David's not thinking straight. <laughs> he's not thinking at all. And he's not inquiring of the Lord. He's using a cart just like they did. God permitted the Philistines to use this method since they were not his covenant people instructed in the scriptures. But for the Jews to ignore God's commands and to imitate the heathen nations is to invite disaster. Anytime God's people imitate the world to do God's work, we're in trouble. I like how a favorite preacher of mine puts it. He says, don't, mim don't mimic the, wor the world's methods and techniques. Just because a strategy is successful in the business or corporate world doesn't mean it should be employed by the church. Don't move the message of the gospel like you sell used cars. You don't slap the hood 
and use crass marketing or put the precious gospel on a cart. Verse 6. And when they came to Nashon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. He reaches out his hand to steady the ark to keep it from falling. Then the anger of the Lord has, was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, his irreverence, his disrespect, and he died there by the ark of God. Well, what just happened? You see, the ark represented the presence of God. It was the place where God met with his people. It was the most holy place of the articles of worship in the tabernacle. And it was being treated without regard to God's instructions or his commands. The ark of God represented God's presence. We see that in Exodus chapter 25. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. That's the lid of it. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim which were on the ark of the covenant. Of the testimony. The ark of the covenant is the most sacred object on earth. God said it. Here's what he said to Isaiah. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. The ark is God's physical footstool among men. In the tabernacle, it's found behind the curtain where only the high priest can go once a year. In fact, we teach the kids in Sunday school that if the high priest were to go in the, behind the curtain that once a year to apply the blood of, of sacrifice, and he died in there, Nobody could go in and get him. They would, he went in with a rope tied around his ankle, and they could drag him out in case he died there. It's the most holy place on earth. I like how David says it in Psalm 132. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Well, how then must the ark be treated? How should it be transported? Who should David have appointed to take care of it? This is all his fault. How would David know? Well, we find in the book of Numbers where the law of Moses mandated that the care of the most holy things, especially the ark, was entrusted entirely to the Levitical sons of Kohath. These are all Levitical priests from the, they're the descendants of Moses' brother Aaron of the tribe of Levi. Even these caretakers were not to touch the holy ark or so much as look at it casually, lest, it says in Numbers, lest they die. I've tried to think of a good example of the danger that the holiness and sanctity of the ark poses. So you might say that the holiness or sacredness of the ark was like a pure white-hot flame, a consuming fire that instantly incinerates everything that's unprotected in its path. 
God's specific instructions in the Old Testament in Numbers, Leviticus. His commands are the protection that God provides. The sons of Kohath were instructed to carry the ark on their shoulders by poles passing through rings on the ark's corners to keep them from touching it. The ark was to be covered when it was being transported to keep curious onlookers from the danger of God's judgment. It's interesting that the curtain that kept the ark protected or us protected from the ark, and that they lay over the ark that you see in the picture, that's the same curtain that when Jesus died, it was torn in half. And entrance to the presence of God was given to mankind. Numbers chapter 4 verse 5 tells us, When the camp prepares the journey, Aaron and his sons shall come, and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of the testimony with it. You see, the the ark was holy and sacred. The carrying poles and the covering were very much like covering an exposed high-voltage wire with insulation, a protective covering. When handled incorrectly, high voltage is deadly. That's the nature of electricity, just because of what it is. And that's the nature of the holiness of God and the holiness that God placed into the ark by his very presence there with it. Well, let's look at verse 7 again. Then the angel of the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, his irreverence and disrespect, and he died there by the ark of God. David sees all this happening. His plans are upset. The celebration is ruined by the death of Uzzah. Why has this happened? David thinks this great musical parade is glorifying and pleasing to the Lord, but it isn't. Putting God first actually means doing things his way. Worshiping God our way is not worshiping God. A follower of Jesus needs to do one thing, follow Jesus. Verse 8. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah, or outburst, uh, outburst against Uzzah to, th- to this day, the day that that was Second Samuel was written. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? We might say, how can we approach a holy God like this. David sees the instantaneous, frightening power of God, and he begins to wonder how anyone can live in his presence. David was excited about bringing the ark home, but he was treating the ark more like a religious relic than the footstool of God, the presence of God. He was ignoring God's instructions. He was ignoring God's word. 
This is our sixth point in the bulletin. There's a danger of becoming so familiar with God that we lose our fear of God. I didn't put it in my notes, but every time I came to this thought, I thought of the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis, have any of you read those? They're my favorite children's books. They're a story of God coming to earth, to Narnia, to save the mankind as, as sinners, the children. And the lion, the lion king comes in the person of Jesus, or I might put it the other way around. Jesus comes in the person of the lion king who is strapped to the altar and who gives his life for the children. But the next morning, he rises from that altar. And someone said about the lion, is he a pet? And the children said, oh, no. He's wild. He's a lion. He's dangerous. But he's good. That's a picture of God. Verse 10, so David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. So David and his 30,000 men with him, they returned to Jerusalem empty-handed. Probably the first right thing they've done. God is sending a warning signal here in this story, to all people of all times, that he is not a God to be trifled with. We must approach the Lord with the proper awe and respect. And David receives a dose of healthy fear of God, which undoubtedly sends him to his knees, praying something like, Lord, what has gone wrong? You know that I want your presence with me. I need your power for my testimony and my service. But look what has happened. What is the matter? And this must have driven David to the scriptures and to the priest, perhaps, to determine what should have been done, what he should have done in the first place. Verse 11, we find that the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. Those three months gave David time to think and pray and make new plans. He turn, uh, we can turn to First Chronicles. We can find out that David did search out the Scriptures. I've got them up here on the screen. First Chronicles 15. They, then David said, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites. For the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. And David gathered all Israelites, all Israel together to, at Jerusalem to bring the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. 
Then David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites of the sons of Kohath. Then David tells these sons of Kohath to get ready. He says in verse 12, Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the uh, ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, he's still taking the blame, but the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. Now they'll do the right thing the right way. They're seeking for the living presence of Jehovah, and they're going about it in the divinely appointed manner. Finishing verse 12 in 2 Samuel 6. So David went and he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom in the city to the city of David with gladness. We continue to read, read about this in 1 Chronicles 15. Let's go back there. And the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. So David and the elders of Israel and the captains over thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. And so it was, verse 13, when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, that David had them sacrifice oxen and fatted sheep. David has recognized the sacred and holy nature God has placed upon the ark every six paces as they're marching eight miles back to Jerusalem. They stop and they worship. This is done to acknowledge and emphasize the holiness of God in the sacred ark. David has realized that sinful man cannot exist in the presence of a holy God without adequate sacrifice, without God's protection. This brings us back to where we started this morning. Because God is holy, we can only experience his love and escape his judgment. Because he is also full of mercy and grace. You see, these offerings speak of the sacrifice of Jesus. It's only by the death of Jesus, by his blood shed on the cross, that we can experience God's love. No one can know the joy of the Lord in his soul until first he's met the Lord at the cross and has been washed in the blood of the Lamb. God's grace provided the sacrifice of Jesus to bridge the chasm between completely sinful man and the altogether holy God. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I invite you this morning to come to the Lord through faith, in Jesus, to live for the Lord by faith in Jesus. David stopped and sacrificed every six steps. Jesus, once and for all, was sacrificed for our sin. Uh, my brother's favorite verse says it all. 
And um, it says this, For he made him, for God made Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I like how the message says it. Uh, it says this, How you ask do we come to God? In Christ. God put the wrong on him who never did anything wrong so that we could be right with God. We're made right with God because Jesus took all that is wrong, all that is wrong with us on himself. And you can say one simple prayer to invite Jesus into your life. It's as simple as this. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I'm a sinner. I invite you to be my Savior. Come into my life. Thank you for loving me. If that's your prayer, you can say that quietly in your heart, even now. Many of us have. And God has not disappointed us. I encourage you to do that. Back to verse 14. Then David danced. He whirled about before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod or a simple linen gown. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Number seven in our bulletin, a fearful understanding of God's holiness doesn't kill our joy. It's the source of it. Our God is a holy God, a righteous God, and he will always do what's right, what's best for you and me. God is faithful and trustworthy. I think at this time, David probably wrote Psalm 132 to express his desire to worship the Lord uh, with the ark in Jerusalem. I've got it up here. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. You see, David worshipped the God who dwelt between the cherubim. Our heart is that dwelling place where the Lord wants to live today. The worship team, come on up. Don't forget what we've learned this morning. Whatever you're struggling Whenever you're struggling and need a breakthrough, God specializes in breakthroughs. The Lord does love us and calls us to be his children, but there is a danger of becoming so familiar with God that we lose our fear and our awe of who God really is. And finally, God's holiness creates an insurmountable chasm between God and man. And we can experience his love because he's full of mercy and grace. We need a Savior. God sent his Son. Let's stand and pray. Lord, thank you for your love. God, we don't know how to approach you except as you tell us to 
we live not in fear of judgment of, of hell, but we live in awe that you are not, you're not a tame God. You're a holy, righteous God. And so, God, we serve you and love you because of what you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.